Welcome to Full Cut Professionals, a podcast for social service providers, helping professionals and caregivers. I am one of your hosts, Krista Mayfield, and along with my co-host, Faith Larson, today we are diving into the stress response. Our brains are constantly scanning our environment and responding to what they see, and then making note of that to determine how we respond in the future. And that process has an incredible amount of impact on our everyday life because the way that we see the world and the way that we interact with the world all kind of hangs on what our brains have learned about the world in the past. And so today we're really diving into what our brains and bodies are doing when we respond to stress and how that impacts not just that one moment, but moments in the future. Understanding this has been super impactful for me as I'm trying to make decisions and figuring out what's going on with me and why do I feel the way that I feel. And it's helped me make decisions that have allowed me to keep showing up in the way that I want to. I think you're going to love this episode. We hope that you stick around to the end and let's get started. Welcome back. Yeah, round two. Here we are. Episode two. Thank you guys for listening, for being here. We hope that you enjoyed episode one. If you haven't listened, go back and check it out. We talked all about trauma and just kind of laid that foundation. Today, we're going to talk about the brain and the nervous system and really how the brain sees stress. Like what does our physiological brain, how it was evolved, how it was made, what is it registering as dangerous and how does that impact our life? So that's all about today's episode. Faith, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here, excited to chat about this. What are you drinking today? What do you have in your cup? Today I'm drinking out of my Faith mug. Oh, she's cute. <laughs> she is cute. She's one of my favorites. <laughs> and I am drinking a latte. Oh, uh, we do have a flavor. What's happening inside? It's just a double shot of espresso with nonfat milk that has been like, I have a milk frother. So, Mm -hmm. and then one Splenda. So no extra flavors, but I like it. It saves me a ton of money at Starbucks. Oh, awesome. I love that. I am also drinking what was coffee. It's now at the bottom of my cup, but (laughs) yeah, my coffee from this morning has lasted till almost two o'clock. So been a good day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's a good cup of coffee. (laughs) Truly. Okay. Well, I want to just dive in. I am obsessed with the nervous system. I love talking about the nervous system. I love learning about it. You are obviously highly educated on what is happening in our brains and bodies. So I want to just talk about this because I think that when I learned what's going on in my little noggin and that there is like a physiological system in place, it just made everything so much more clear. It was like, oh, this makes so much more sense to me now. Yeah. And it felt like my responses, my reactions didn't feel like a mystery anymore. I felt like I could understand them. And so I wanted to just unpack for us, what is our brain doing in there and how does it impact the rest of our body? Yeah. I think it's really important to understand this because a lot of people think that they're crazy. They think that like when they're having a trauma response, that there's something wrong with them. And it's so interesting. It's like, no, this is a biological response that your body was made to do to protect you. Mm. We were just never made to live in this state. And so when we can learn that, hey, my body's doing what it's supposed to be doing, 
It's just doing it on overdrive. We can reframe the whole way that we think about ourselves when we're struggling. Which is like life-changing for us, right? Yeah, it is. It is life-changing. That's amazing. So for those of you listening, you might not be able to see, but if you ball up your fist and then tuck your thumb underneath so that your four fingers are overlaying over your thumb. So you have like a fist except reversed. Instead of it being like a punching fist, you've got your thumb tucked in to your palm. Your four fingers are folding over. And that's going to be our little hand model of the brain. I like the hand model because it's very simple and because thankfully I have hands. So my model is always with me. (laughs) So our brain receives information from our senses into our amygdala. I'm just going to say that our thumb is our amygdala. So it's inside. It's tucked in there. and Our amygdala, which I have called the receptionist, decides Mm. what part of the brain needs to process and react to the information it's getting. So again, you've got your five senses, your sight, taste, smell, hearing, touch, and all day, every day, your brain is absorbing information through those senses, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, the tones of people's voices, the speed of cars driving by. Are there alarms? Are there birds chirping? All of that is just information to your brain to let you know what's happening in your environment. And so all that information is coming to your amygdala. And then your amygdala is like, oh, cool. We're all good here. If it thinks that you're safe, you can continue to operate with your prefrontal cortex. And that is your four fingers. That's the front part of your noggin. If you touch your forehead, kind of on the top of your head right here, that's your prefrontal cortex. This is the part of our brain that does logic and language and reasoning. What else does it do, Faith? What is our prefrontal cortex good for? It's what's used when we are making those conscious choices that we were talking about last time. Mm. That's what's online when we are thriving and when we are making conscious, rational choices. Thinking things through. Mm -hmm. Our prefrontal cortex can think things through. And so again, if our environment is safe, if our brain is like, no problems, we're good here, then you can think through that math problem in your fifth grade math class, or you can respond to that email with thoughtfulness. You can plan ahead for your meals for the week, and you can think through how you're going to respond to that conflict in a way that's going to preserve the relationship. But when it perceives danger, it sends that signal, that information to the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is also kind of tucked in there in the middle of the brain. Let's say it's like your palm. And the hypothalamus is what controls our autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is the part of our body that does things that we cannot control. Our breathing, our digestion, our heart rate. So there's the nervous system, right, that moves our muscles. I'm moving my finger and I'm telling my brain to do that. But I'm not telling my brain to make my heart pump or to make my lunch digest or to make anything else like that happen. That's the autonomic. I'm not thinking about it, which is Great, by the way, because if I had to think about it, your girl would forget. So my body's doing that on its own. And then that nervous system has three modes, one that kind of operates in safety and one and two that operate in a state of danger. Faith, can you unpack for us really quickly those three modes of the nervous system? Yeah. So this is what we call polyvagal theory. Dr. Stephen Porges developed polyvagal theory. And basically, it's saying that the vagus nerve that runs from the base of our amygdala all the way through the end of our spine, so it's going to cover most of our body, is running automatically, sending signals of safety and danger 
from the brain to the body, from the body to the brain. And throughout the three stages, one is safety, one is fight or flight, and one is fawn or freeze. And so depending on whatever situation we're in or whatever our brain interprets the situation in, it is going to send those signals to the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve is going to carry it through our body. And then our body is going to automatically respond based off of what state the brain said we need to be in. Yeah. I like to think about it as like the gas and the brake pedal. There's not like a perfect analogy when we're talking about the nervous system, but the idea that we have this rest and digest state, this slow down, we can think things through, we're safe. And then we have our go mode, right? Our respond mode. And then of course, the fawn or freeze is that like elevated slamming on the brakes kind of thing, right? Where it's like, we feel so in danger that we freeze. Mm-hmm. But what I think is interesting is that the body prioritizes different functions within these different modes. And so what's happening is that the body is saying, in rest and digest, we're going to focus on these set of functions. We're going to focus on digestion and cellular repair. Like we can take care of our house. We can clean house. We can do things that are healing and health promoting in this function because we have time. But when we're in the stress mode, and again, one of those two options, fight or flight, fawn or freeze, when we're in that stressed mode, our body sends energy and nutrients and resources to the things we need to do to deal with the stressor. Mm -hmm. So again, different functions are happening in these different modes. All of them are really important, but it's just important to know that those modes just mean that the body is allocating energy and resources to different things, either cleaning up, keeping house, taking care of things, healing, digestion, resting, or doing what it takes to get out of that situation, to get help or to get out or to get safe or to just get something done, right? That or productivity. Or to survive the situation. Yes, absolutely. So the back of our brain, if you go back to your little hand model of the brain, it's the back of our brain towards our neck and the back of our head that really houses our emotional response, our survival response, and even our memory. So again, that front of our brain is what Faith was talking about, where we have logic, linear thinking, reasoning, and then the back of our brain is where we have those more instinctual things. The prefrontal cortex, that front part of your brain, we're not really born with one. We develop one over time. When we're we're a baby, we cry, we cry, we cry, then someone comes and feeds us. And then when we're two and three, we learn to ask for things, right? We say, I can use my language for that. Okay. Now, if I don't get what I want, when I want it right away, I'm going to start freaking out and screaming, right? And then someone comes and says, no, we don't do it that way. Be calm. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to get you what you need. And so as we grow up, we learn to engage our prefrontal cortex and it grows. And the prefrontal cortex fully develops for us in our (laughs) mid-20s. So all of our youth, right, is spent acting out of this instinct and then learning, okay, I can think things through. Okay, actually, if I just add one more little step in there, I can make something different, right? So that back of our brain is there since we're a baby and sometimes we will go back to that. So when our amygdala, the receptionist, gets that information and it tells us, you have time to think through this or you don't. You're safe enough to actually think through this response or nope. And if it says no, that data is going straight to the back of the brain, straight to that hypothalamus. It's going to activate that autonomic nervous system and it's going to put you in a stress response. 
So if you've ever been in a car and a big truck pulls out in front of you and you slam on your brakes, what happens in that moment? Your gut drops, your muscles in your leg clench, your shoulders come up, you grip the steering wheel, your eyes get really big. Yeah, you brace for impact. You brace for impact. In a fraction of a second, a million things happened in your body when your brain registered that danger. Adrenaline was dumped into your bloodstream. Blood, which is bringing energy and nutrients, gets pumped and channeled to your muscles, your heart, and certain vital organs like your lungs, your brain. We start to breathe more, and that increased oxygen is sent to our brain, and then our senses become a little bit sharper. We have stores of glucose in our fat cells and our muscles and our liver. And so when we get in a stressor, that glucose releases into the bloodstream so that we can use it for energy so that we can evade that threat. And all of that happens in a millisecond before your logic and language brain has a chance to process what's happening. So part of your brain has already seen the threat, responded to the threat before the part of your brain that can put words to it has been able to process through that all the way. So we have this immediate survival response where this amazing part of our brain is so active, so aware, so on alert and can respond in a moment. But that's why we have reactions and only later we realize what happened or a split second later we can say, a truck pulled out in front of me. In the moment, you didn't have words for that. Your body just responded. Yeah. And then the hypothalamus, so that part of the brain that triggered that stress response, is part of a trio of organs called the HPA axis. It's the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, which is also in your brain, and your adrenal glands. Your adrenal glands are like tiny little pea-sized glands, and they sit on top of your kidneys. And so when the hypothalamus activates the stress response in the nervous system, it communicates with these other glands, the pituitary and the adrenals. The adrenals release cortisol into the body. Adrenaline is like your immediate stress hormone, the like rush feeling. But cortisol is that more steady state stress hormone. And that cortisol will remain elevated in your body and your bloodstream until the brain receives a signal that we're safe. And then we can go back into the rest or digest mode and the body will begin to calm down. So we, as humans, have this amazing ability to see a stressor, respond to it, and then come back to a rested state. However, it doesn't always happen that smoothly. Faith, do you have anything else to add on the stress response from the brain? You gave us a great coverage. The only thing that I would add is that, you know, the amygdala, another word that we talk about in the clinical space is that like we call that our reptilian brain. It's only job is to help you survive. It is an animal. It's animalistic. It is going to make those split second things. And our prefrontal cortex is like what makes us different than animals. Hmm. The fact that we have the ability to do these things, to reason and to have interpersonal relationships and to do all those things. And so, yeah, when a stress response is triggered, we are going to refer back to, like you said, that reptilian, that survival brain. And when we're a baby, that's all we have is our survival brain. All we are wired to do when we're born is to survive. And we develop everything else as we go along. So it's just so interesting how all of these pieces play together. Yeah. And I actually like that you used the word triggered there because 
I think that's become a hot button word in our culture. Mm. People like to say it has become a buzzword. Yes, it has become a buzzword. We're like, oh, I'm triggered. But what we're really saying there is a trigger starts a process, right? Mm. And so when we see something or hear something, or again, our senses perceive something, that starts a process in our brain. And so the original intention of that word in this sort of mental health context is to say, I saw something or heard of something or experienced something that set my brain down a certain path. Mm -hmm. I received any type of signal that told me I'm in danger. And what happens with trauma when we are triggered, it's not, oh, the danger's over there or, oh, the danger's five minutes away. It's the danger's happening right now in real time, even if it's not. Mm -hmm. Yes. What I think is interesting is that Our prefrontal cortex has learned through life and experiences a much more balanced way of looking at what's dangerous. Again, because our prefrontal cortex can reason and be logical and think things through. Sometimes logically, that breakup that happened 10 years ago doesn't affect me now. Or what that kid said to me in third grade has no impact on me. But again, that reptilian brain, that amygdala is so beautifully wired to keep you safe that our brain interprets more than we realize is dangerous. Mm, Yeah. So let's talk about what is the brain looking for? If our brain is so intent on keeping us safe, what is it looking for to tell us that we're not safe? I've kind of summed it up in three things, but I want to hear what you have to say. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it it all starts with our senses. Our brain is taking all of our sensory information and it's triaging it. And so Mm -hmm. it starts with what we hear and it starts with what we see and what we feel and what we smell and what we taste. Like I just took a sip of my coffee and that tasted good to me. And I love drinking coffee in the morning and the warmness is a good feeling to me. And so when I drink coffee, it brings all of those feelings of warmness emotionally and physically into my body. And my brain says, "Mm, this is good. But if I had a really bad experience with coffee or gotten sick off of coffee once, then my brain's going to go, oh no, this is that thing that tastes so bad that made us sick. We don't like it. And it might make us sick again, just to say, get it out of my body because it's dangerous, even if it wasn't dangerous this time. Right. And so it all starts with our senses. And what happens is, is we can have sensory information that today is not dangerous, but maybe back as a child, something red was dangerous. And so every time we see red, it's going to activate that trigger. Right. As the brain is taking in all of these senses, what's it filtering for? It's filtering for any sign of harm, lack, or disconnection. That is what your brain is evolutionarily wired to avoid. When your brain sees harm, lack, or disconnection in the world, it's going, okay, we need to respond. We need to protect ourselves here. And so what you're describing is that the way that our brains can learn over time, right? Through our experiences. Well, then what is harm? Let me break that down. When I see harm, I'm talking about danger, right? Like physical harm, emotional harm, hurt, right? I have learned about myself that I am very sensitive to emotional pain. I have a very low pain tolerance (laughs) and my brain has been excellent at contriving all kinds of stress responses and 
protective mechanisms to keep me from getting emotionally hurt. Those have been very difficult to undo and so complicated. But my brain is looking for like, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to be emotionally hurt. I don't want to be physically hurt. So it's looking for that. And then lack, just not having enough of what I need. The brain needs to know that if you're going to be able to survive your circumstance, you need to have the food, the shelter, the clothes, Mm -hmm. the things that you need in order to survive. And then disconnection, disconnection relationships is a sign of danger to the brain because we've been evolved over millennia to survive with others, to connect with other people. And when there's breaks in relationship, breaks among people, our brain says, whoa, 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 that's dangerous. We don't want that. Yeah. And so the brain is going to filter all of these experiences, all of these senses to look for signs of harm or hurt, lack, not having enough, or disconnection in relationships. And like you were saying, we don't get a like pre-downloaded manual of like what is and is dangerous or what is and isn't safe. We learn that from experiences. And so in your coffee example, right? If you have a bad experience, your brain learns that. So our little amygdala, it's her job to look for danger. It is that receptionist's job to take every bit of sensory data in and scan it for what's dangerous. What's dangerous? Anything dangerous? Do I need to be on alert? Do I need to be responding to something? And that little amygdala, that reptilian brain is so sensitive that like Faith, you were saying, if you get hurt or you experience something negative in one direction, it's going to begin to look for that everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it keeps a record. It keeps a tab. Oh, someone said this to me one time. Oh, I did this and then this bad thing happened. So never do that again. And it keeps a record of all the ways that we've been hurt and all the ways we should keep ourselves safe. And it can be really overbearing. It's like that helicopter mom that just like won't give you a minute to breathe. Mm. And the more that you've been hurt and the worse that you've been hurt and the less help or support you've had, the less resilience you've been able to have because of a lack of support or resources, the more sensitive your amygdala is going to be to this sense of stress. Yeah, the harder that it works. It's going to overcompensate. Yes. The brain is constantly being shaped by what it sees and experiences. And again, we have this prefrontal cortex that can be logical and reason through things and think through things. And so we sometimes don't realize how much we have been affected by something because we can logically say, I've been in a car thousands of times and I got in one car accident. So I'm not going to get in a car every time. So why do my hands get clammy? Why do I dread getting in a car, right? Any kind of moment where you're just like, this shouldn't be a problem, but it is. We can be frustrated with ourselves and not realize that there is a physiological response happening that was designed to keep you safe. And actually it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Cause just like the prefrontal cortex was the last thing to come online, it's going to be the first thing to go offline when we are triggered or something. And so it's just like, you know, last hired, first fired. It's the thing that's not going to protect us. When we're in danger, we don't have time to sit and think and sort it out. And what's the best choice here? So our autonomic nervous system does it for us. It says prefrontal cortex, no. Amygdala, yes, go. And we don't have control over it. And that's why sometimes people go, gosh, 
now in hindsight, I wish I had made all these different choices, but in the moment it felt like I couldn't do anything different. And it's like, you actually probably couldn't. Your brain and your body decided for you based off of previous experiences. It said, hey, this has kept us safe before. This will work again, even if it's a completely different situation. And even if it won't actually help you that time. Hmm. I'm so, so glad you brought that up because I think the frustration, even just the shame that we can feel Mm. around our responses, that in itself can be damaging. That in itself can be traumatic, the way that we are frustrated with ourselves about a response. So again, that hand model of the brain, you've got those four fingers wrapped over your thumb. And I heard it said that the phrase flip your lid, like I got so mad I flipped my lid, Mm -hmm. is if you flip your four fingers off your thumb, that's exactly what you said. That prefrontal cortex is going offline. Offline. and yeah, we just do stuff. We just respond. We just have this gut reaction. And then later we go, oh, dang it. Why did I, man, I wasn't. And we can repeat patterns over and over again. Yeah. And it's only when our prefrontal cortex comes back online that we go, oh, I had all of these options that I didn't think about in the moment. But the only reason we didn't think about them in the moment is because the thing to think about it wasn't working. The thing that helps us think about it doesn't work in the moment. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And again, the prefrontal cortex requires safety. Mm -hmm. It functions in safety. And that is something we can learn. But again, if our amygdala says rejection will kill you, Mm. avoid rejection at all costs, then I'm going to avoid rejection at all costs until I tell myself, until I can teach my body okay, rejection is awful. It hurts. It's painful, but it will not kill you. Mm -hmm. You will be okay. And I can survive it. Yeah. Yes. But thinking about all of this in the context of social services, because this one day blew my mind because I was in a training. We were learning about what the brain sees as dangerous. And I was like, harm, lack, disconnection. Well, that's my job. (laughs) Yeah. That's where we live in social services. That is our world. We drive towards that when we go to work. Yes, 100%. And we're hearing stories of people that have been in dangerous situations. There's not enough money. We don't have enough beds. Our client doesn't have a house. They're trying to get what they need. They're in relational turmoil. It's them versus social services and their case manager this and a police officer that and their partner and I mean, it is just the story of our work that we are surrounded by. Too much hurt, too much lack, and not enough resources. Yes. Nobody has what they need. Everyone's struggling. We're all trying to get what we want. And I think especially in the social justice space, there's such a reality working with people that have been marginalized where you're just like, there hasn't been room for you. There hasn't been room for this population, for this group of people. Yeah. And so there can be this even social struggle, right? This feeling of us versus them. There's not enough space. Move, make room. If it's always been them and not us, there's this need to make it us and not them. And again, mm-hmm. it's this whole world that we have chosen to be a part of that is just marked by this kind of struggle. And, you know, what happens is all of the struggle drives disconnection. And so when when we have those three things, harm, lack, disconnection, those are the three things that are dangerous to us. We work in a place where there's harm 24-7. 
we work in a place where there's lack 24 seven and then trying to get the resources for the people that we're responsible for getting the resources to over someone else. I got to get there before somebody else, or I got to figure it out. And I have to, I have to, I have to is going to drive disconnection when really what we need to be doing is coming together and connecting Mm. so that we can get out of the space of we live in harm and we live in a plethora of lack. Oh, Faith, that's so good. That even made me think about like fighting, not fighting, but competing for funding, Mm, right? Yeah. Again, it's just the nature of the work that we do. And it just makes sense that if our brain shapes around what it sees, and this is what we experience all day, every day in various ways, our brain is constantly getting signals that the world that we live in is full of hurt, lack, and disconnection. And ultimately what that equals is that the world we live in is not safe. And so then our bodies respond accordingly. Yeah. And that hormonal cocktail of adrenaline and cortisol, that extra feeling of clarity, the boost of strength that we get when we get activated in that stress response, as well as the desire to continue to avoid that fear that triggered the response in the first place, that can kind of culminate in what ends up being a pretty addictive lifestyle. Yeah. We can be addicted to that feeling of adrenaline and cortisol. It's that feeling of, I can't slow down. I can't, Mm -hmm. I have to be moving or I have to be distracted or I have to be listening to something or I have to be working or whatever it is. It can be so addictive because right again, it feels great having that boost of clarity. You're stronger than you normally are. You're not bothered by much. You're not really thinking through your emotions or how you're emotionally feeling. You're just doing. Yeah. But that state of being can be so addictive. And especially for people that work in fields that expose them to those situations. If you're a first responder, if you're in law enforcement, if you do any kind of crisis response or crisis management, it can be easier to stay in that elevated response, that stress response, and just get good at living there and get good at, in quotes, right? Like manage that state versus trying to come back down into a rested state. Yeah. But what's so interesting is that the stress response is so effective at allowing us to survive a situation, but what works for surviving does not usually work for thriving. Usually not, no. Not (laughs) but. And so when that survival response becomes your everyday reality, the truth is that the quality of our life begins to suffer mm-hmm. emotionally and mentally, relationally, physically. So I wanted to just kind of talk through what happens to us when we are living in that survival state, when our brain is like, we're in danger, we're stressed, and we're going to start to shape around that, live according to that information. What happens to us? Yeah. So when we are stuck in fight or flight, and we are living off of adrenaline and cortisol, we are going to be living in a state of restlessness, a state of racing thoughts, a state of hypervigilance, a state of panic, a state of anxiety, like all of those things that I just described could all fall under the anxiety umbrella. And so what doctors have labeled as as anxiety is really a prolonged state of fight or flight. And If we were only to tap into fight or flight for 10, 15 minutes to survive a threat and then tap back into rest and digest, those things would serve us really well. But because we're living in a state of fight or flight, 
we can't rest because if I rest, my mind is racing and my legs are restless. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I need to be getting up and doing something. And so it makes it hard to get back into that rest and digest state. Yeah. Yes. When I think about like the emotional and mental consequences, I think about, you know, when, oh, I hate this. When there's a car alarm going off in a parking Mm. lot, it's not your car, right? (laughs) This used to happen outside of our office all the time. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. People's car alarms just go off and it's the worst because you're stuck there. We were working there. Whoever it was, wasn't coming out to turn their alarm off. And it just like puts you on edge, right? Because an alarm is designed. We are like trained to think, I need to respond to this. I need to respond to this. And so when an alarm keeps going off, it's inescapable, right? It's your job to keep showing up for those crisis responses or to keep showing up for your clients. Or when it's a past story that just won't shut up, right? A past trauma that keeps coming back. If you can't escape that alarm or you can't do anything in the moment to turn it off, we then teach our brain to think differently about the alarm. We either try to quiet it or we try to tell our brain, stop sounding the alarm when that thing happens. We don't need that. I think about this when I worked with refugees a few years ago coming out of the Syrian war. And I remember little kids telling us awful things that they had seen, awful things that had happened. And them saying it like it was no big deal. Like they told me what their favorite color was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because after a while, we have to say, hey, let's turn down that alarm. Let's make it not so loud. Because if it's so loud, it's going to overcome me. But if I can't get rid of it, I have to dull it. Yes. And this is where I see this a lot in social service, a lot with investigators, prosecutors, people really dealing with a lot of trauma is this sort of like, meh, it is what it is. And on one hand, That is a survival skill that they have learned to do their job is whether they've worked with their brain to be able to do what they do. Yeah. They couldn't show up every day if every single scene bothered them as much as it would bother a lay person. Right. So it is absolutely important and not necessarily maladaptive. But what happens is that when we tamp down one part of our brain, we sometimes tamp down everything. And sometimes we can do this with being intentional about, hey, I'm not going to emotionally respond to that or I'm going to disconnect emotionally. But sometimes we don't think it through that well and we can lean into some more maladaptive coping mechanisms, especially numbing mechanisms. So things like using substances, media, staying really busy, burying ourselves in work, gaming, all of those can be ways that we're just trying to numb and distract from the alarm in our brain. Or people might turn to things like violent movies or risky behaviors as a way to try to normalize danger to lessen that fear response. And again, that emotional disconnect will have implications when we try to connect with people, when we try to be vulnerable, when we try to have deep and meaningful relationships. If we have gotten so good at separating all of our emotions from ourselves, or we've turned off all of our senses, right? All of our emotional response and capacity. Mm-hmm. We might have avoided the pain and the alarm, but we've also handicapped ourselves when it comes to experiencing other parts of life that may be really important to us. Yeah. Cause if you turn it back on so that you can experience joy or you can experience being present, then the alarm comes back on. Anytime mm-hmm. that you come back online, as I like to call it with my clients, 
everything comes back online. You don't just get to choose, oh, I'm just going to have this window open. It's all of my windows come back on. And if I'm not ready to deal with that, then I have to keep my computer on shutdown. Right. And that can really impact us relationally because, again, in fight or flight, in our stress response, the part of our brain that enables communication is diminished, right? It's offline. It's not as connected. So communicating can be really difficult. But also if you are actively engaging in some of those coping mechanisms, if you're using substances, if you're numbing, if you're checking out, if you're not present, then when you want to have a moment of connection or you need to access vulnerability to have a meaningful moment, those things are hard and it makes relationships really challenging. Yeah. And it sometimes makes the people that you want to connect with not in a place to want to connect with you. Yeah, we can be difficult. (laughs) (laughs) We are not the most fun. And I say that from personal experience. And I have been so lucky to have people in my life that have loved me really well. I had some roommates when I was really in the throes of my like direct service work and even through COVID. And man, those girls loved me so well. (laughs) But I was a hot mess. And looking (laughs) back on it, looking back on it, I'm just like, oh my gosh, Krista, you were complicated and challenging. That's what you were, baby. But (laughs) at the time, I didn't see it. I don't know what I thought about myself, but bless them. But yeah, it made connecting, it made relationships really hard. And I'm grateful that I had people in my life to love me through that. But I have to say, like, it was very generous on their part to love me through those seasons. It took a lot for them to be present with me and to be a safe place for me because I just wasn't pleasant. You know, I just wasn't a fun person to be with. But then there's also these physical components. And, you know, as a health coach, this is like big deal to me. Because I shared a little bit in our last episode that I had gotten really, really sick. Mm. I'd gotten sick pretty much right after I started working in the anti-trafficking field, but it progressively got worse. And especially my window of direct service, and then that bled into COVID. And I really started to understand the connection between it all because I just hadn't seen it before. But like we said earlier, those modes of the autonomic nervous system decide what functions get done when. Yeah. And so if you are busy surviving a threat, responding to a stressor, trying to stay safe, trying to avoid whatever it is that your brain has registered is dangerous for you, your body is prioritizing all the functions needed to make those things happen. But the nutrients and energy from your food, your blood, your oxygen, all those are going to those functions and the other functions are getting turned down or they're not being done at all. Mm -hmm. So your body is prioritizing, again, your muscles moving, your heart pumping, your body's pumping out cortisol. Yeah, it's prioritizing survival. And Mm -hmm. that is why our mental health and our physical health are so closely related. So closely related. Yeah. They're interconnected through our nervous system. And so when our nervous system is strung out, you know, Mm -hmm. so to speak, our physical body is also going to take a hit. Yes. So things like hormone production. So yes, our body prioritizes stress hormones, but it's going to produce less of your sex hormones or your happy hormones, things like serotonin, oxytocin. So that's going to look like 
if you menstruate, you're not going to have a period, losing hair, mm-hmm. not feeling connected, not feeling happy, just feeling a sense of vitality. Yeah. Things like detoxification, cellular turnover, right? We have trillions of cells in our bodies remaking them all the time. That's not happening or that's definitely downgraded. Your body's not prioritizing doing cellular cleanup, if you will. Even digestion becomes impaired. Again, when that initial stress response strikes and that adrenaline dumps into your bloodstream, one of the first things that happens is your body stops producing stomach acid. Your digestion basically goes offline. All of that blood, all of those nerves, they're sending energy away from your digestion. So you're in the car. You just had a crisis call. You're rushing to one thing. You've got your kid has something going on this afternoon and your your mother's sick and all this stuff is happening. And you try to eat a burger on the way to work. Mm, Honey, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) If you get bloated or you have digestive issues or you feel like your food just sits there, That is because your body has stopped producing stomach acid, which means that you're not breaking down and absorbing nutrients. So that can lead to one, nutrient deficiencies, right? Because you're not absorbing what you're eating. Yeah, you're not getting the good stuff. You're not retaining all of the good things that isn't the food. Right. So even if you're eating healthily, which again, sometimes when we're stressed, we're not. But even when we're eating healthily, we're not absorbing those nutrients because we literally don't have the processes to do it. But that can also lead to things like gut dysbiosis, right? If you have food that's just sitting in your stomach, it ain't pleasant. Like little bugs might start cropping up in places you don't want them to. (laughs) We're going to have some gut issues because our body is not fully absorbing that food. It's sitting there. Digestion gets really difficult. That dump of glucose into your bloodstream when you get stressed is genius because we have these stores of glucose. Glucose is the sugar that we eat and glucose is the fuel for our cells. So when we eat carbohydrates, our body breaks that down into their very smallest form of sugar called glucose. That's what gets in our bloodstream. And then we have insulin that puts it into our cells and then our cells use it for energy and ta-da, we move, we breathe, we live. It's great. So we have stores of excess glucose just in case. So again, if you get a crisis call or you are answering a stressful email from a community partner or your boss and you have that dump of adrenaline and that glucose rushes into your bloodstream, but you just sit there and your muscles don't move and use up that glucose, well, now you've just had a major blood sugar spike, which will then lead to a blood sugar crash. And that dysregulation of blood sugar has some really severe implications. We'll do a whole episode on this later, but that High blood sugar and that crash can lead to energy drops, can lead to mood swings. But that repeated over and over again is part of the dysregulation that leads to prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. So there are some pretty severe physical implications when we just live in fight or flight. And again, when we have a stressful job, it can feel like it's great because I am great at my job. I can handle stress. I can do all these things. But if we're not practicing living in both modes Mm -hmm. and we're only living in our stress mode, we're missing out on all of the things that make us a whole human and the benefits of getting our body and our brain back into a rest and digest state. Mm -hmm. I remember it feeling like a superpower. Like I remember feeling like those things don't bother me. Yeah. That's what I was going to say too, is that like people that have PTSD, they really only feel the effects of the PTSD when things are calm. Mm -hmm. When things are high stress, they are 
the go-to person. People with trauma know how to respond to stressful situations. That's what they live for. It's only when things are not stressful that I'm starting to feel like I'm crazy or that I can't calm down or, you know, all of these things. And so, yeah, so if you are used to living in a high stress environment or working in a high stress environment and the high stress never stops, then yeah, you are on top of the world. Oh, look at Faith. She can really perform. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in the working world, that's a good thing. Not sometimes, all the time. You know, like, oh, she's our go-to girl. She can handle any situation. So then Mm -hmm. I never get a rest because I have now made myself to be the go-to person that can handle the situation. Yes. I think it's important to say that there is a difference, right, between training yourself to keep your prefrontal cortex engaged, right? Mm -hmm. When law enforcement does trainings, when you are an advocate and you do trainings, you are training yourself to see something stressful Take a deep breath, keep your body calm, and tell your amygdala, yep, this is scary, but do not turn my prefrontal cortex off. We need it. We're going to stay engaged. There's a difference between training to work like that and using maladaptive coping skills that come from excessive and repetitive composure. Yes, you might perform well, but it's not because you've taken the time to teach your body we're safe. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. As you're training, you're saying, no, this looks dangerous, feels dangerous, sounds dangerous, but we're safe. Mm -hmm. But when you don't actually teach your body that you're safe and you're just adapting to living in a stressful state and a stressed out mode all the time, that's the difference. And so I definitely want to highlight that being able to stay engaged in a stressful situation is not inherently bad or wrong. But what we're saying is that it's your body doesn't feel safe. There's a difference between teaching your body safety and ignoring the threat, numbing the sense of fear, numbing the sense of threat, numbing the pain. And so there is a way, there are a lot of ways to develop a healthy nervous system because a healthy nervous system is one that can fluctuate appropriately between these modes between the stress response and the rest and digest, a healthy body can appropriately fluctuate between the two. It knows when to respond in a stressed mode to say, we, we got to get her done. And it knows when to come back down. But you talked about earlier before we started the importance of completing the stress cycle, which when I read, is it Emily? Yeah, Amelia and Emily Nagasaki. Yeah, they wrote the book Burnout. Yes, Great book. So help me understand completing the stress cycle and why there's a physiological component to making that loop. Yeah. So completing the stress cycle is basically when we are in these prolonged states of stress, right? So let's take the situation of say we're walking in a forest and we come across a bear and our prefrontal cortex goes offline and our amygdala tells us how to escape this bear, right? And then we either escape the bear and the threat is over or the bear attacks us and kills us and the threat is over because we're dead. But either way, that's going to be a short-term harm. And if we survive the bear, then we get to go, oh gosh, that was scary, but the threat is over. I'm no longer in threat by this bear. But because we don't live in a world where we're coming across bears and we are having short-term threats, we are living in a world where we're in long-term threats all the time. We have to provide that signal to our brain and to our body ourselves to say, hey, the threat is over. 
And so when we say completing the stress cycle, that's what we mean. Doing something that tells your brain, hey, the stress is over. So if that's coming home from work and going for a run, you know, right after work, or even changing out of your clothes into your comfy clothes when you get home. It could be as simple as that, those little things, or it could be as intricate of having a whole routine to formulate it to say, hey, brain, we've completed the stress cycle. But understanding our bodies and how we react to stress is the first step to completing the stress cycle. Yeah, I think that's so important to give our bodies that release and go, okay, this Mm -hmm. marks the end of that moment. Mm -hmm. And that can be a lot, right? Especially when our little T traumas, our complex traumas, those interpersonal things, right? I'm not safe if people don't think I'm excellent. I'm not safe if people don't think I can handle everything. And so we're constantly trying to be everything to everyone or whatever it is for us, right? Those little interpersonal things that the underlying motivation is I'm not safe unless mm-hmm. I'm not going to be okay. I'm going to be hurt. I'm going to be disconnected. I'm not going to have what I need unless marking the end of that, being able to recognize, hey, that's what's happening here. You're afraid. Do the best you can. Again, it's so much about becoming conscious. Yeah. Just like we teach our babies to use language to ask for what they need, we have to then give ourselves the language to describe what we're experiencing so that we can then have some conscious control over that. Yeah. And not only language, but like recognizing our body's sensations to go along with those two. So a lot of Mm -hmm. times like people think I'm overwhelmed at work, which means I cannot take a break because I have so much to do. I'm overwhelmed, which means I have to work harder. But actually what overwhelm is trying to tell us, it's in the word, I'm over my limit. I'm overwhelmed. And so what overwhelmed is actually trying to tell us is that we need to take a break. And so if you can recognize, man, every time I get overwhelmed, my shoulders come up, my neck gets tight, I get tense, I'm clenching my jaw, I can start to notice, oh, I'm sitting here at work and I thought it was okay, but really now I'm noticing I'm overwhelmed. So then I can go, okay, I'm overwhelmed. My trauma response is to work harder and work through lunch or to say, oh, I'm going to be late coming home tonight because I have so much to do. That's going to be my trauma response, my survival response. But when we start to notice these signals and put it with the language, then we can go, oh, I'm overwhelmed and I'm tense. And so I need to take a break and go take a walk. I need to counteract what's happening in my body and in my emotions and in my brain to signal, hey, this is actually not life or death right now. Whether or not I answer these 250 emails is not actually life or death. Mm, Yes. So then once we've completed the stress cycle, we want to then teach our brain to come back to that rest state. And so if you go back to what we first started talking about was that the brain is receiving data, receiving information from our senses, and that information is what's telling our amygdala we're safe or we're not safe. Mm -hmm. In order for us to then activate our safe mode, right, the mode that we get into when we feel safe, we have to see things that let us know that we're safe. And so I think sometimes it can be overwhelming to feel like, 
I'm stressed out all the time. I don't know how to calm down. Like, I just think people, it's so hard. We didn't know that we were getting stressed. We didn't know that we were being activated in our stress response. Mm -hmm. And so then we talk about it and then we're like, well, then how do we calm ourselves back down? Like, how do we balance this out? Well, it's in the word, right? Stress response. Mm -hmm. So you have a stress response. You also have a rest response. You don't have to make it up on your own. You just have to respond to what's there. So I think one of the best things that we can do for our brain and our nervous system is to really dial in, to really pay attention to those moments that communicate we're safe, we're loved, we're surrounded by good people, we have what we need, we're going to be okay, we're okay right now. So whether that's you go home and you have dinner with your family and you really notice the smile on your kids' faces and you smell the food and you see your partner and y'all have a moment together and y'all have some good conversation. If it's in the morning, listening for the birds, our bodies evolutionarily are wired to respond to birdsong. Birdsong lets us know that we are safe. It activates that parasympathetic, that rest and digest. Because evolutionarily, right, if there were no threats in our environment, the birds were singing. But if something was wrong in the environment, the birds weren't singing. (laughs) So stepping outside, listening for birds, just doing things to respond. And really what you're talking about, Krista, is engaging your senses for safety. Just like our senses can be engaged for danger, we can engage them for safety. We can ground ourselves and our body through our senses. So when you're going outside to listen for the birds, you are grounding yourself through your hearing sense. When you take a sip of coffee, you're grounding yourself through your taste sense. Mm-hmm. When you are smelling an essential oil, you're grounding yourself through your smell sense. And that's why the five senses of grounding is a such a simple coping mechanism, but it's so impactful because it brings your brain and your body back into alignment, back to them talking to each other in that state of safety. Yes, yes. And it can be so powerful for those moments, right? For those moments where we're stressed or those moments we need to help ourselves calm down. But even thinking about it from a bigger perspective, you know, we talked about how working in social service, the very dynamic of it, the very nature of it is conducive to activating our stress response. So we want to build a whole life, right? We have to kind of balance the other side of practicing getting into our rest response. And so, yes, use sounds and smells and taste to ground and feel in moments where you're stressed. But I think what you're talking about is making a practice of that, of sipping your coffee in the morning and being present. This tastes good. I love coffee. Being able to hear kids laugh and go, man, that's a nice sound and not just let it bounce off your ears. Because again, when we're stressed, our brains are like laughter, who cares? That's not important to your brain. Your brain is like, we're trying to fight bears right now, right? Even when I was in the thick of all of my own trauma from work, I was like, I don't have time to have dinner with my friends. I don't have time to talk to you. So we teach our brain, yes, you do. You are okay. And you are safe enough to enjoy this moment. You're safe enough to hear that the world is good. But we just can't do that. You can't just make it up. You can't pull that out of thin air. You can't expect your body to calm down if all that it's interpreting and seeing and receiving is danger, danger, danger. Well, yeah. But you know what's so interesting is that sometimes we can actually trick our brain. 
So mm-hmm. say that you don't have super great support system to go to to laugh with, or you're not coming home to a family that you can sit at the dinner table with, or you haven't trained yourself to listen for the birds yet. You know, you're not mindful enough to do all of that just yet. Something that was really impactful for me was I started watching stand up comedy on Netflix and watch things that would make me laugh out loud because my brain doesn't know that I'm not laughing because I'm not surrounded by people that love me. I'm feeling this really great moment with friends. My brain just knows I'm laughing and laughing out loud means I'm happy, which means it's going to give me the good hormones. And so there's times where I'm in that state of stress and I know I should do all these things. You know, I know I should complete my stress cycle or I know I should go outside and drink my coffee and watch the sunrise and be mindful about it. But all I have the energy to do is to sit on the couch. And so I'm going to sit on the couch, but I'm going to watch something that's going to make me laugh so that at least I'm tricking my brain to think, hey, there's something good going on. And Mm. my brain doesn't know that that may not be true. Our brains are just the coolest thing. They, Yeah, they really are. They really are made to protect us and to provide us good things. I think that's amazing. Do you have a favorite stand-up show on Netflix? Oh my gosh. Me and my husband actually just watched two this weekend. One was not so funny, but one was hilarious. This guy, he, I can't remember his name, but it's a 37 and single. And it's all about like the dating world, you know, in the modern world and the apps and Mm -hmm. the swiping and everything. And he was just hilarious. But no, I don't really have, like, I'll watch anything. And what's so funny is that this started as like a coping mechanism for me. And now it has turned into this thing where I love going to comedy shows. And when we go on vacation, we'll go try to find a comedy show to go to. And so it's turned into this really awesome hobby that I enjoy doing. But it really started off as, hey, let me trick myself out of how heavy everything feels. And the only way I know how to do that is to watch a comedy and hopefully that it makes me laugh out loud. I love that. I love that. That's genius. Well, thanks for chatting through trauma and this idea of living in survival mode as we work in social service. Again, I don't think it has to be this way, but I think it would behoove us to recognize. It would behoove us to really see what we're up against because I think if we don't do it mindfully and we don't do it with some awareness, We're just going to get caught up in the autonomic, the automatic, right? The automatic Mm -hmm. flow. And so having some awareness around this and having some ways, whether it's to practice being mindful, notice the good things around you, laugh at a comedy show, just ways that we can balance out what our brain is perceiving. Our brain has enough information to go, you know what? The world's rough, but there's also some good stuff too. We just need to balance out the information that our brain is getting. Yeah, we need to take the time to turn it off. And, you know, I think one of the things that we didn't highlight that we could spend a whole podcast episode on is the culture in social services is that Mm. you are supposed to work more than 40 hours. You are supposed to be working overtime. You are not doing the job well if you are not working too much and too hard. Mm -hmm. And when that is the culture and those are the messages that we get, it's hard to learn how to turn it off. It is hard to be the one person that says, no, I'm going to go home at five today. 
Right. There's so many factors at play that learning to do the little things first and then climbing up to the big things. So for everyone out there listening, if you can just do one thing this week to counteract the stress and the heaviness and the overwhelm and the constant boundary violations, just take this and just try to do one thing for yourself. Yes. One thing. Find a way to teach your brain that there is beauty and goodness out there. Thank you so much for listening. We honor you. We honor the way that you show up in your work. We are so thankful that there are people like you out there doing the kind of work that you do. We hope you have an amazing day. Faith, what are you doing to fill up your cup this week? This week, I am doing a lot of stuff. My son's school, I'm going to be putting on my PTA mom hat. And it turns on a whole nother side of me. And I really do love going to all of these functions and seeing the kids having fun and seeing them laugh and stuff. And it really does fill up my cup. Love that. You're a great mom. Oh, thank you. What are you doing? You know, I have been a gym girl. I've been a gym girl for almost a year now, lifting, and I love it. So that's where I'm headed. And that's going to be what I do this week. Just keep on getting stronger. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, nice. It feels good to feel those gains, huh? Uh, It really does. I'm obsessed. (laughs) (laughs) What's been the biggest gain for you that you've noticed like from when you started to now that you're like, oh, I can do that? So I've been doing like the assisted pull-up machine. I'm still really far from like an actual pull-up, but you know, the assisted like offsets your weight. Mm -hmm. And so I've taken that down by... 40 to 50 pounds since I started. And then I've upped my weights on pretty much everything. So my back is getting a lot stronger. My legs are a lot stronger. So I'm about to start working on pistol squats. I mostly can do a pistol squat on my right leg, but my left leg is crap. (laughs) So um, we're going to be working on like actually doing pistol squats. Mm. So that'll be fun. That's my next challenge. Pistol squats and handstands. Oh, handstands. So pull-ups are coming. I've been working on them. They've just been really slow. But I upped my weight on everything last week. Yeah, that's amazing. I have a group of friends I work out with, and one one of them added five-pound plates when I wasn't looking. And I saw he was (laughs) looking at me while I was, like, doing the thing. And I was like, why does he keep looking at me? And I was like, also, why is this so heavy? (laughs) But he was like, you did it. You're so right. I did. So... Yeah, that's filling up my cup these days. So thanks for another great episode. Yeah. We'll chat next time. Yeah, and we have an email address if you guys want to yes. contact us, questions, ideas, comments. We're open for it all. You can reach us at hello at fullcupprofessionals.com. Love that. H-E-L-L-O at fullcupprofessionals.com. Yep. We want to hear from you. Tell us your social service stories. Tell us your episode suggestions. Yeah. We'll have more things coming up for us to stay engaged, but we want you to know that we want to hear from you. Yeah. I'm Krista with Good Sustain, goodsustain.com. And I'm Faith from Holistic Hope. You can find me at holistichope.net. And we'll chat with you guys later. Bye.